If you were here last week, hopefully that song, the text of that song, the lyrics of that song sounded familiar because it really grounds us in what we're hoping this entire Lenten journey will look like. This second um, Sunday of Lent, the second Sunday of our Holy Attention teaching series, we said last week that the goal of this Lenten journey is that we're hoping to, to narrow the gap between heaven and earth. And that if heaven is anything, heaven is a place of focused attention, which isn't like the most romantic definition of heaven in the world. It feels like way too kind of logical in some ways. But, uh, but that's really the, the core of what heaven is biblically. It's not an eternal golf match. It's, uh, and a pastor can say this, it's not an eternal church service. Thank goodness for that. It is uh, a sense of, uh, of a relationship that's made whole. That's what heaven is. Heaven is a place that where it says that God uh, will look into your face, that you will see the face of God, that you will look into the eyes of your creator. And what the Bible says is that you and I are relational beings, where meaning is found in life is relationships. Jesus said that. Jesus is like, hey, you can have everything in the world. You can do everything. You can have every resume. You can have whatever job. You can be who's who of whatever. Your kids can get into whatever college. All that might be great. He says that if you're not loving the Lord your God, if you're not strong in that relationship with God, and you're not loving other people, you're missing the point of what this whole thing is about. There is something in your life that will always be lacking, will always be vacant, if that is all that you are. And that heaven is when that relationship, which is what we are, relational beings, when that relationship is complete. And that when we look into the eyes of God and God looks into our eyes, that that moment is what we're made for. And that we will get lost in time and space. Time and space won't even mean anything anymore because of the strength and the focus of that connection and that attention to God. And likewise, what we see is that when we're in heaven, we're not there by ourselves. Heaven's very personal, but it's not individualistic. It's something where we are there uh, together with one humanity, linked together as brothers and sisters. And so when we, in this age of great distraction, when we focus our attention on God, when we realize God's attention is always focused on us, nothing is more important to God than you are. And that also when our focus gets on each other, that there's, there's almost nothing as sacred, as holy as you can do as putting a phone down and looking at someone and asking how they're doing. Take them out to coffee, asking how you can pray for them. That to pay attention to each other, that's the very fabric and DNA of what makes heaven, heaven. We're trying to close the gap in this age of distraction so that we have holy attention on God, recognizing God's attention is on us and paying attention to each other and carrying one another to the Lord, okay? That's the hope of what we're doing. Last week, we were guided at how that began by looking at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Today, we're going to add five more verses on and read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 to keep going forward in this journey of paying attention. This is what the text says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called in the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, that we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this to have open minds and hearts, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what we said in this series is we're going to be following a basic pattern. And each week we're going to look and study one aspect of what this holy attention is on God. And we're going to like, try to understand it better. And then as we try to understand it better, we're also going to try to practice it the following week. Okay? So Sundays we're going to look as the starting point of how do we focus our attention on God? How do we bridge this gap? And second, uh, we're going to then try to practice it during the week. We're going to offer practices. So where we started from Isaiah chapter 6 is saying that the first thing that Isaiah notices is is that he's in the temple is that there is continuous praise and worship of God. That these seraphs, these angelic beings are encircling the throne and they're singing and they're calling out to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. They're praising God. And and as we talked about last week, the way we want to practice that and think about it is like what we're doing today. It's it's through music and song. The seraphs, uh, Walter Brueggemann writes, are singing to each other in Hebrew, saying God is holy. God is in Hebrew, kadosh. God is kadosh. God is holy. He is set apart. He is pure. He is wondrous. And that, and that we wanted to invite you to do the same. We didn't want to analyze it. We didn't want to do what, what sometimes we can and, and, and go, we want to understand the seraphs aren't going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory and all of us now have cognitive understanding of exactly what it is the seraphs are saying. It's not, a, it's not an analysis. It's, it's an experience of it. And so they are, they are singing and praising God. So we invited you to practice this week through song. How do you praise God? How do you pay attention to God through praise? We created a Spotify playlist that got way more attention than we even thought that it might. And, and we hope that you'll keep using that. I, I was in California this whole week, and no matter where I was and moving and on the road, it centered me every single day of just listening and praising, getting rooted and grounded again in the presence of the eternal. So that's where we begin. But what we notice and what we're going to focus on this week is what happens right afterwards. Because right after Isaiah sees these seraphs and hears these seraphs praising God, God is kadosh, God is holy, we immediately see Isaiah's response to that, which is to say, I am not holy. I am not kadosh. That's kadosh. I'm not. And he says, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And that's the practice of attention we want to pray, pay attention to today and this week. How do we focus our attention on what heaven is like by paying attention to how we confess? How we need to be people of confession. What it looks like in our own lives to say that God is holy and to be aware of those places where we are not. Now, I want you to notice in the text, when we talk about confession, that can sound like last week was this great high. It's like, man, I wish I was here last week. Like, last week was the praise and the everything else, and this feels like we're just beating ourselves up for the week, and there's something holy about that. That's not how, heaven, that's not how confession works. 
This is about a state of being honest with ourselves. I want you to notice some things that were in the text that Isaiah said about what uh, sin is. First is he says that sin is this idea that it is both individual and corporate. Right? He says, I am a man of unclean lips. God is kadosh. I am not. I am an unclean man. But then he says, but I am among a people of unclean lips. So the thing we need to understand when we think about a week of confession is that this is hopefully going to be a week when we're aware of our own brokenness, but we're also going to be looking for societal brokenness. Where do we see the brokenness in our systems? Where do we see the brokenness in our culture? Where do we see the brokenness in our nation and in our world? Isaiah is pointing out from the beginning that, that, that sin and confession is something that exists both personally but also corporately. And so we want to think in those terms. The second thing that we notice here that we want to pay attention to in the practice of confession is that Isaiah never gives a specific action as to what makes him unclean. He never says, oh, I did this this morning. I, told a, um, uh, I, told, I talked about somebody behind their back. Therefore, I was sinful, and therefore, I need to confess this action. We have no idea what it was that made him think, I'm a man of unclean lips. We have no idea what was happening in the nation of Israel at the time that made them a people of unclean lips. What we have to understand about sin is that sin is not action. It's a state of being. It's a state of brokenness that we are in and in our world. The Apostle Paul talks about sin in the New Testament. He said, sin is when I know what's good and I can't do it. And sin is also that I know what I'm not supposed to do and I keep giving into it, right? And no matter how many times I look at someone and go, this time I'm going to change, this time I really mean it, it's like a New Year's resolution. Usually two months down the line, we've reverted back to our patterns. We've defaulted back to the way we are. There's something that's bigger than our willpower, that's bigger than our guilt, that's bigger than our shame, it's bigger than all the things that motivate us. Sin is a state of brokenness, right? It, it's the state of kind of saying that, that, uh, that there's a, a falsehood, that while we might have political allegiances, the idea of just kind of sitting there and going, well, if the other party just like could win the, this election, then everything will magically get better. No, it won't. There are systems that are more broken than just getting the right patterns and behavior. And confession is the honesty of naming that. So I'm being honest about our lack of holiness and about also how we see that in the world, okay? Now that is becoming something that is harder to talk about in today's society because studies are showing that more and more of us don't think of ourselves as people of unclean lips. In fact, more and more of us, as we talk about ourselves, we're kind of like, I think I'm a pretty good person. That's how more and more people are going. I don't know why Isaiah is beating himself up. I think, we're pre I think I'm a pretty good person. And so it, this is more foreign language. That's why confession feels like it's going to be a downer of a week this week to some of us. But science is also telling us that when we think of ourselves as good people, we maybe need to think again. There's a study that came out first out of Cornell University several decades ago. It's been a study that's been repeatedly looked at by different folks, and they find the same results in different parts of the world over and over and over again. And the study has become known as the study of the illusory effect. Illusory effect. It's the same root word as illusion or mirage. There's an effect where we live behind a mirage, illusory effect. And the effect is simply said that study after study says that we are wonderful. 
Well, not wonderful, but we're actually pretty good at telling other people and judging the strengths and weaknesses of other people. Jill is probably really accurate at being able to tell you a lot about my strengths and weaknesses as we work together and serve together, right? But what it also says is that while we're accurate when we talk about in the strengths and weaknesses of other people, we are not accurate when we look at ourselves, that we think of ourselves a whole lot better than we actually are. That's the illusion we live behind. And they found it in all different kinds of ways. Here's some examples from the research they found. They asked a whole bunch of university professors, college professors around the country. They asked them to take a survey, and they asked them this question. They said, do you believe that you are better than average? You are more effective as a teacher than the average college professor. Are you better than average? 94% of them said they were better than average. Now, I'm not a math major, but 94% cannot fit in the top 49%. 94% of them saw themselves as better than average, which isn't possible. And yet, if you ask them, who are the other professors you work with that are better than average, they were very accurate at being able to tell you who was better than average. We just think of ourselves better than we are. And we're not just beating up on university people here, okay? They then took the study and they went to a large tech firm. And they asked every employee in the tech firm, uh, do you believe that you're among the top 5% valued employees? You bring more value to the company than 95% of other people. You're top 5% in the whole company. 35% of them said they were in the top 5% of value add to the company. They were better than 95% of the other employees. Or then they went to Australia to see if it was cross-cultural, and they asked drivers in Australia, are you a better driver than the average driver in Australia? Over 75% of drivers said they were better than the average driver, but when asked to tell you was somebody else a good driver or not, they were very accurate at being able to tell you. The illusory effect says this, is that I am a good, pretty good judge of other people, but I see myself as better than I am. So when we culturally are getting more and more comfortable going, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. Science is telling us you have no business offering that opinion. And neither do I. It's false. It's a false reading of things. And, and so therefore, we need to be aware of our proclivity to say something that scientifically probably isn't true. Christianity is not about a worldview that just says, you know, uh, I'm just kind of a really good person and then God just wants me to be really happy. Our faith is a worldview that starts with honesty. There are good things that I know I should be doing that I don't, and there are things that I give into all the time that I know I shouldn't. That doesn't mean I'm just a horrible person. I think what it means is that you and I are capable of acts of great generosity and beauty and kindness, and eight seconds later we can be unbelievably selfish people. And we can't just discipline our way out of it. The Christian worldview is to say that we start where Isaiah is. That when we recognize there is kadosh, there is holiness in the world, and we recognize and are honest about our own need to change, that that's where we can change. Because that's what the last part of the study said. The study of the illusory effect. What it said is, is that people actually can change if they're honest about getting feedback from other people. So if other people give me feedback that says maybe I'm not as wonderfully perfect as I think I am, which maybe your spouse does too, then, then, then they, that, that if you don't shut down on that and just go, well, you don't know what you're talking about, but you listen, you actually get a more honest viewpoint of yourself and it's in that honesty that change can happen. That's where you can start changing, is through honesty. Confession's not about beating yourself up, it's about coming to a place of honesty before God 
so that change can happen. Now, this is where we're going to end. How does that change happen? How do we change because of confession? We see that here in the text. Is it when Isaiah says, I'm a person of unclean lips, look at what God does say and what God doesn't say. God doesn't say, for example, what we culturally might do, which is to say, no, Isaiah, don't say that about yourself. This is a negative day for Isaiah. We want a positive day for Isaiah. No, Isaiah, don't take that frown and turn it upside down. Uh, You're getting all negative here. You're special. You're special, Isaiah. You're so special. God doesn't say that to him. God doesn't let him off the hook when Isaiah says, I am not Kadosh. God doesn't sit there and jump in and rescue him to make him feel better. But what God also doesn't do is jump on him and make him start feeling guilty. See, the thing of why we could start feeling beaten up is it's like, well, is this just the answer of what I am, that there's something that is broken in me, that's broken in our world, that's broken in this. And to understand that the gospel, the good news, is understanding and being honest about that, but seeing that the response of God is not condemnation. It's not for you to wallow in your guilt and feel bad about yourself. God has an answer, and the answer is the good news. The answer in this place is that one of the angelic beings takes a a coal of fire and cleanses the lips that Isaiah says are unclean and says, now what you knew was not kadosh, God now says is kadosh. God has made it holy. God has made you holy. And we as people of faith believe that that's what the cross is about. That we are forgiven. That we are met by God in our need and that God declares us loved. And then as we see with Isaiah, not only says to him that you are now a person of unclean lips, he then sends him and gives him a calling on his life. This is how things change. Is how life becomes, as Craig Barnes says, that life for Christians is meant to be received rather than achieved. It doesn't start with this is the goals and this is everything I'm going to do, including I'm going to work my way out of the bad patterns in my life. It starts with being honest with God about where we and where our society is broken And about hearing God's response that changes us. It's God's response of forgiveness and love and grace that changes our life because we start responding to who God says we are. I want to end with a story because this can kind of become academic and it's like more like, uh, and I wanted to have life for us as to what that looks like. What does that mean for you to practice confession because it's how God meets us in our honesty and then changes us and sends us? The story I want to tell you is a story some of you have heard me say before in in various settings, but it fits just really well with with what this is about. It's a story about uh, a a 501c3, a a 501c3 in an urban area on the West Coast that became known as this place where great transformation happened in people's lives. And specifically, this uh, nonprofit worked with uh, women uh, who had been both involved in, in had been trafficked and also women who had been in prostitution. And they had this great, amazing record of reaching out to these women and seeing change and transformation happen in these horrible situations in which they had been placed and forced. Well, this had gotten such a response that one day the executive director, who had become well-known in the community for her amazing work, had some doctoral students that wanted to come and to visit her to learn about how this amazing nonprofit worked. And they, they sat down with her with their notepads. They started asking her. They're like, how did, how did this get started? And she said, well, it actually got started out of a church. And they were like, really? And they're like, yeah, it got started originally out of a church. And she said the way it got started is like many things. It didn't start with a committee top down. It started at a grassroots level. 
And the way it started was that the church was trying to solve a problem, which, you know, is what we do. And she said that the church was trying to solve the problem of declining worship attendance. And so what they started doing in this urban downtown church is they started offering free lunches after worship, thinking if people could stay for lunch and get a free lunch, they could go to worship, they could then hang out, they could talk and have fellowship. Maybe people want to stay. So they tried it. And the numbers went up for the lunch. Because what happened was they started having word got out on the street to uh, homeless people and also to a number of women who had been working on the streets that night that they could go in at the end of the night and get free food. So they started going to the lunch. And so the church then had to solve that problem. So they said, well, we'd love for you to come, but we also want you to come to worship first. And so to have the lunch, you need to come to worship first. And they were surprised that a number of the women started attending the lunch. What also happened is the leadership of the church started getting tons of complaints from the members of the church who did not like what it represented to their children and their grandchildren that these folks were a part of the worshiping life of the community, of setting a bad example. And so the session, the leadership group of a Presbyterian church, had an emergency meeting to decide what to do. And they responded the following Sunday. And what they decided to do was, at the beginning of worship, as these women all sat in a specific area of the sanctuary and everyone else sort of had moved away from them over the months, these elders walked in with their families, these men and women in leadership of the church, and went up to these women sitting in the row and asked them in sight of everybody, would you mind it if our families came and sat and worshiped with you today? And then if we had lunch together. It was a way of symbolizing this is our response as followers of Jesus, of what we do. Well, as they went up to lunch, one of the elders was a young woman. She had two young children who were seven and five. And she said as she went to lunch with the guest who was there that day, who had been working on the streets that night, she said that she, it was kind of awkward. Like, you know, hard to know, like, what do you talk about and how do you kind of make conversation? She said, my children were there. There was a part of me going, like, what are they seeing in this? And, like, those questions were there for her. But she said at the end of this lunch, and her two children being very, very quiet, uh, finally uh, at the end, she said, I kind of felt awkward. And I think she felt awkward and weren't certain what to say. And so I just kind of popped out with this question. It was random. I said, hey, next week, could I worship with you again? And do you want to have lunch? And the woman said yes. And she said, but rather than having lunch here, do you want to come to our home for lunch with my family? She said that the guests kind of looked at her and said, um, okay. She said as she went throughout the week, she kind of got more and more nervous about should she have done that? It wasn't the right thing. What were her children going to think? How was it going to work? She said she actually started hoping in her head that maybe the lady wasn't going to come to worship the following Sunday because she was uncomfortable too. He said when they walked into church, the woman was there, having worked all night. And at the end of worship, they awkwardly said, well, do you want to come to our house for lunch? And the woman seemed a little lost, but said, I'm sure. And they got in the car and drove to this house. Family was having lunch. These two little children were still quiet. This woman, their guest, was eating. And then all of a sudden, the five-year-old got up. And without saying anything, walked around the table to this lady and said, may I sit in your lap? And the guest looked at the mother and kind of said, is this okay? And the mom just nodded. She reached down and picked this five-year-old up who was just staring up into her face and then reached up with one hand and touched this woman on the cheek and said, you are so beautiful. The executive director looked at these doctoral students and said, no one had told me that in my entire life. And that 
was where my life changed. Because these were a people who followed a God that knew exactly who I was and told me that I was included, that I was welcomed, that I was valued, that I was beautiful. And that is a God I want to follow. Confession isn't about beating yourself up this week. It's about being honest about who we are, about the good things that we fail to do, about the things we shouldn't do that we keep giving into, about the evils and incompleteness we see in our society, in our nation, in our world. It's about honestly naming that before God because that is the only way we change. By then receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ who looks at each of us as we hold that brokenness out and says, I see it, you are loved, you are cared for, you are valued, and you are sent to live that good news out in this world, to live a life of purpose. And when we can focus our attention on that in the midst of this busy week, what we will see is heaven and earth aligning a little more closely together, won't we? Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray this day, this week, that you would allow us to be honest with you, with one another, with this world about what falls short of the glory of God in us and around us, not to be condemned, not to beat ourselves up and not to feel shame, but to feel your call and your love upon our life that transforms us and forgives us and washes us clean and sends us out to follow you and proclaim this gospel in the world. May we celebrate focusing our attention here and may we encounter you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.